0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 6th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santamaria. Howdy. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan cannot make it tonight because he is busy doing his taxes. Well, everyone <laughs> else's taxes. Because, you know, that's what he does. He's an accountant. It's getting down to crunch time, I guess, for tax preparers.
2: Well, and don't yeah. forget that if you own your own business, corporate taxes are due March 15th. It's the personal taxes that are due March oh, yeah. 15th. So, yeah, it's like the next month and a half is going to be bananas.
0: He's so busy. Like, his job be- becomes so epically demanding during this time. Like, he's pulling, um, what did he say? How many hours a week did he work last time? Oh, Steve? I don't
2: remember. But I think he was saying some t- days are 12 to 16 hour days.
0: That's tough. That's a hard thing to 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 continue to do for a couple of months.
1: That's nuts. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna go straight to some news items. Kara, tell us about this fake sex doctor.
2: Oh my gosh. Have you guys been following this?
0: Yes. Um, Yes. Oh my god. The guy is so bad. It's a pretty
2: new story. So we're recording this on Wednesday, March sixth. There was an incredible investigative report that was published by Jennings Brown um, over at Gizmodo on this past varieties. And since then, we've seen follow-ups and we've seen other people rewriting it and repackaging it and talking about it in different ways. I got kind of deep into the rabbit hole on this one because there's all sorts of websites that have been taken down and archived website pages and ooh, it's juicy. Okay, so there's this guy named Dr. Damien Jacob Markowitz Sendler. You'll often see him written as Dr. Damien Jacob Sendler, so D.J. Sendler. I probably shouldn't be calling him doctor because we have no idea. It's quite likely that he is not Dr. Sendler after all. But long story short, Dr. Sendler has published a ton of papers in legitimate peer-reviewed journals. He has an entire persona That he has built up around his credentials, around his status within multiple interdisciplinary fields of psychology, medicine, and sexuality research. All sorts of professional organizations, all sorts of positions, even a President's Gold Service Award for his contributions to medicine and mental health. Turns out, not a doctor. Turns out, not legal to practice medicine or psychology or any sort of mental health service. No license. Probably the organization that he is um, on the board of is not real. He probably made it up. There is no such thing as a as a president's gold service award. So didn't get that. Didn't go to Harvard. Doesn't have an MD PhD. Every single aspect of the sheen of legitimacy that this man has developed was knocked down by Jennings Brown and probably a team of people that he worked with maybe he did it all on on his own over at Gizmodo like amazing investigative reporting here so let's get into exactly what happened here this guy Sendler has been interviewed or written at so many different outlets vice playboy huffpost bustle women's health forbes a bunch of different places if you look online You can still find a bunch of his articles or blog posts, I should say, at theleadershippsychology.com as of this recording, and also at Thrive Global. You can still find a bunch of his posts. You can find his bio. Like At Thrive Global, his bio reads, Dr. Damian Jacob Sendler is an award-winning Polish-American clinical sexologist. The scholar of forensic and legal medicine. don't know what it says, the and not a, and a scientist trained in digital epidemiology. Dr. Sendler's clinical expertise and research into mental health and medicine are regularly featured in the world's most reputable public media, television, lifestyle magazines, print uh, newspapers, and radio. If you try to look at his bio on his own website, (laughs) now everything, every single page has been taken down from his website. And the only thing you'll see is a letter that he wrote in response to the Gizmodo reporting. So this went up on March 3rd, two days after the Gizmodo report went up, and I can read you um, some highlights from that in just a second, but before I do, let's look at this. So I said that he has been featured in all of these different outlets, we've seen him on, Love Science or IFLS, if you want to say that, um, in case if you have to bleep me, we've seen him basically at a lot of actual legitimate science reporting outlets as well, in addition to the actual peer-reviewed journals where a lot of his research has been published. Now, early on in his career, when he was just a student, he co-published on some legitimate articles about genetics. And you can find some of those articles still on Google Scholar or any place where you you look at journal articles. so role of tet1 in erasure of genomic imprinting in 2013 The MIR 424, a few other numbers, cluster orchestrates remodeling of the epithelium and the involuting mammary gland. That's 2014. But he's, you know, a co-author with a huge team of people. And it turns out these things were existing when he was an undergrad. From the reporting that Jennings Brown was able to do, it does look like he earned his undergraduate degree at New York University. Since then, he said that he was at Columbia and then Harvard. But it turns out that he never actually went to either of those schools. He did some volunteer stuff at Columbia. Like he worked in a research group that wasn't affiliated. He worked in a research group at Boston Children's. He worked in a, he was also an employee at Howard Hughes Medical Institute as a technician, but he was never actually enrolled in any of the affiliated universities, even though he claimed affiliations with those schools. He worked with a legitimate and uh, celebrated researcher named Dr. Zhang who's a professor of genetics um, at Harvard. He always called him out as being a mentor. Oh, he was my Harvard mentor when I was there working on my MD-PhD. Turns out, no, he, he was a paid technician in one of his labs. He never actually went to school. He dropped out and Dr. Zhang is like really upset by what he's learning about what Sendler's putting out there. It's really convoluted. I highly recommend that you read this, this long, really well written piece about all of the things that this guy has lied about over the course of his career. His thesis advisor. Um, named Jose Silva, who's also a legitimate researcher. Uh, in response, he's like, nope, wasn't his thesis advisor. He was a volunteer. He never went to Columbia. Like, this is bad. All of the universities that he says he was affiliated with, he, uh, this, uh, investigative reporter hasn't been able to confirm. Most of them came back and said, we don't have this guy enrolled. We never did. Some of them never responded. Um, apparently he is currently enrolled at an extension school outside of Harvard as a master of liberal arts degree candidate. And it sounds like he kind of used that as a way to say that he went to Harvard, but he never earned an MD, PhD. There's no way he's a member of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law or the American Psychiatric Association, which he claims to be members, elected members of both, because he doesn't have a medical degree or medical license. And so because of that, he can't be members And then it's just a really interesting story as this uh, researcher – I'm sorry, this um, investigative reporter goes back and forth with, I should say, Mr. Sendler trying to learn more about this facade that he's built up in the media and online about being a sex therapist, about actually offering therapeutic services in New York City, and then maybe backtracking and saying, oh, no, wait, I don't really do – actual therapy. I just consult. But there's a good chance that people have actually been quote unquote treated or we should say mistreated by this quack. Um, And then later, one of the most interesting things that I saw in this is that, you know, he's written a bunch of weird papers and these papers have actually been published. So here's one. I'm going to read this headline to you guys. Try not to laugh. Okay. Okay. In the Journal of (laughs) Forensic, yeah, Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, this one was accepted July 24th, 2017, and published July 25th, 2017. Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, similar mechanisms of traumatic rectal injuries in patients who had anal sex with animals to those who were butt-fisted by human sexual partner. Yeah. Yeah, this was actually published. This mm-hmm. with this title, um, the the paper that was just published a couple of days ago, also in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, lethal asphyxiation due to sadomasochistic sex training. How some sex partners avoid criminal responsibility even though their actions led to someone's death. Good chance that most of the research in these articles is um, not legitimate. Most just of it, fa- he's
1: just faking everything. Yeah,
2: he's faking stuff. He pulled it. He says he pulled it off of case studies, but there's no way to know. There's obviously his track record should not lend a lot of legitimacy to these things. And the really scary thing is he writes about and even appears to do some counseling in suicide research and treatment, and he doesn't have the least bit of training in sensitivity around suicidal patients. And you can read even in this Gizmodo article the types of things he says when interviewed about suicide are shocking, and they're not appropriate when working with a vulnerable population. It's just horrifying. Dan Savage, um, at this point, famously interviewed him on his show on Savage Lovecast, which is a really well-respected show. Obviously, he's really interested in things like kink, in paraphilias. These are the kinds of things that this guy writes about a lot. And he is now, you know, speaking out and saying, man, it sucks. Like, this really sucks. Like, I got fleeced. I got taken advantage of. We're going to have to really step up our vetting process. It just, we we didn't know we lived in a world where we have to vet these experts so so much more carefully because the sheen of their website and their publication list and all these other things isn't good enough anymore. Mm-hmm. They can literally just fake it till they make it, and that's you what happened. Fake to this the guy. whole thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is so bizarre.
1: I know, but reading through the article, though, like I wonder how many other professionals he encountered because. Like, this guy screams fake to me. Of course, I know he's a fake now, but...
2: Yeah, but he doesn't know that the word meta-analysis. Yeah, he uses the
1: word meta-analysis wrong. I mean, he's a psychiatrist, allegedly, right? And he, Uh he has pictures of himself with a stethoscope around his neck. First of all, most doctors never wear a stethoscope around the neck <laughs> yeah. and psychiatrists have absolutely nothing to do with this. With the stethoscope.
2: Oh, and all of his, yeah, all of the websites where he has multiple blog posts listed, it just really looks like an acting resume. It's just like headshot after headshot after headshot yeah. of him looking into the distance. Like he's kind of attractive. He's very well dressed. You know, he has like a decent figure. Like he takes care of himself that you can tell yeah. and like his appearance yeah. is important to him. But and guys,
0: it was good enough to fool a a lot of people for a very long
2: time. I know. It's amazing. And it makes you wonder, A, how closely were these people really looking? And B, was this guy ever actually doing the things that he claims to have been doing? Or was he just talking about having done those things? You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. he never actually did see patients and it's all smoke and mirrors. Or, But if he actually did see patients and we're probably going to keep learning as more things are uncovered, it could get really bad. Right. Like really Unfortunately, bad.
1: The, the other possibility – like. You know, again, if I didn't know the the whole backstory, I would think, all right, this guy looks like a quack who is trying to have a media career, mm-hmm. you know?
2: Well, and that's sort of how it comes across when he talks yeah. about his um, – like when he finally sort of gets got, you know what I mean? When he starts to realize that this reporter is like actually investigating him and he starts to, you know, him and haw and backtrack in his, in his answerings, he talks about his – what he considers to be his, what would you call it? Like staff, I guess, Um, you know, one of the website pages that were was archived is the page that has all of his research associates um, and all the people that have worked for him. So two research associates, like eight psychology fellows, four clinical fellows, a bunch of student fellows, a bunch of administrative personnel and editorial team. And the Gizmodo um, investigator was like, I can't find evidence that any of these people exist. They have no web presence. The only person I could actually confirm was his administrative assistant. Turns out that's his mother. The (laughs) name that he used is his actual mother. And the person that he keeps kind of passing the blame onto, which is his publicist, he's like, well, we sometimes have disagreements about how I should be presented, but he's my publicist and he knows best. The investigator at Gizmodo thinks he made that guy up too. Mm Mm-hmm. He thinks he's his own publicist. So it's a really interesting – like it goes deep, man. It goes deep. Yeah. Like this guy's a it's full on huckster.
1: Yeah. And it shows you that it's harder to pick up a big lie, right? Yeah. The bigger the lie, the, it might seem like it, it might be more obvious. But actually it could be more challenging because who would think that everything was fabricated? Mm-hmm. The guy's entire professional persona is a fiction. But also – you know, like I don't know how savvy it is. It's like you would, you would never get away, for example, applying for privileges at a hospital because that does require actual vetting. Oh, yeah. And at
2: if- one point, he says that he's starting a new clinic and it's affiliated with some small hospital. And when the, um, when the Gizmodo reporter reached out to that hospital, they were like, no, there isn't, we're not starting a clinic with this guy. We don't even know who this guy is. Right. So it's like it's really easy to fact check this stuff. It's just that maybe nobody has up to this point.
1: The scary the scary thing is the the here's the most scary thing. If he didn't outright lie about certain things like going to like having an MD PhD, if he just presented himself as like an alternative therapist, everything else could have been okay. Not not okay, yeah, but I mean he would have gotten right. away with it. If he was just like an alternative media psychologist, with all of this nonsense, he would have gotten away with the whole thing and would have been accepted because there's no standard there,
2: right? Yep. And gosh, Steve, like you would love this. So I just chatted to the whole group a link to what his website looks like now. So if you just go to Damien and it's spelled Damian, like Mm -hmm. D-A-M-I-A-N, Sendler.com, you'll see that he took down every link on his website and he just put up this statement called Re-Reporting by Gizmodo. Um, And basically, it's like, it's a who's who of name that logical fallacy. He basically just sets up a straw man from the beginning. It looks like the biggest controversy surrounds two research papers from Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine. Those are the two that I cited because they're the only two that are available in open access that are published a bunch of other stuff he talked about was like in press or he was talking about having submitted. But he says, no one has read these papers, yet everyone has opinion about them as being suspicious. And then he goes through and dismantles all of this stuff, which is like, that's a straw man. We're not just upset about two papers, my friend. We're yeah. upset about all of these lies. And then he, you know he talks about a bunch of other things. It's a very, very defensive letter. And at the end, he says... Um, I hope that working with reporters would demystify seemingly controversial topics. Apparently, very few reporters take the time to read research papers thoroughly before interviewing scientists. Yeah, apparently he's passing the buck on to reporters, making some sort of weird claim that if they had read his papers more thoroughly, like none of this would have happened, which makes no sense. And then then he he wouldn't
1: have faked his degree. It's so
2: weird Uh, because he's still doubling down as if he's a legitimate expert. So then he says, I will ignore comments about my character or some other allusions to inflatable reality. Photos with stethoscope, question mark? There are hundreds of thousands of pictures of medical doctors, nurses, and technicians posing with medical devices online. I will not even comment on this further or my past experiences. That's like a throwaway line. Like, no, dude, that's what we really want to talk to you about. Um, There are plenty of public figures, including scientists who face criticism for something they've written or said. That's why I'll, I'll continue to engage with everyone in a conversation about a seeming controversy surrounding my research to set the record clear. Twitter and other social media tend to get explosive with jumping into conclusions, sincerely, yes, mm-hmm. very strange.
1: Yeah, deflection, just deflecting. Yeah,
2: but it's such a it's such an interesting um window into like the mind of what would you even call? I mean, like a charlatan, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. A mind, yeah, but a, that's pathological, though.
2: It must yeah. be right. Well, he's a like,
1: pathological liar. I mean, he's. A, he's created this entire fantasy world you know? but the
2: fascinating thing is and we can't be armchair psychologists about this any more than any anybody else can be like whether this is you know a mental illness kind of a thing whether it's not um whether this is criminal what well we could probably talk about whether or not this there's a criminal uh, component applied to this but when it really comes down to it it's such a fascinating lifestyle i don't know if i want to call it that it's such a fascinating endeavor. And obviously, it has this really intense potential to cause harm, but it's it's very seldom do we get to see something like this, this con, start to become unraveled before our eyes and understand it for what it is. So I think it's a really good kind of case study in a lot of the things that we talk about on the SGU.
1: Absolutely. and it, But it also does show you that you – like the media – yeah, they have to to vet so called experts more carefully.
2: Absolutely, but it, there are always going to be people who who make it through. Um, yeah. Depending on how skilled, because this guy's not a not a stupid guy. Like he's very smart. You can. No, tell. you
1: got to be smart to pull this off. To this, you got to be
2: smart to write research papers that are completely made up.
1: And the, and again, the scary thing is, you know, the, he was really extreme. I mean, he he. Was was ambitious mm-hmm. yeah. and there could be lots of people out there who are just sort of halfway doing what he did and getting away with it. Or know? even
3: better than him.
2: Yeah. That's true. I mean, but hopefully if he actually did see patients, criminal charges are brought – I mean, this is somebody practicing medicine without a license. There's all sorts of you know fraud involved here. So we'll see how this shakes out. I'm definitely going to be interested to keep following it.
1: All right. Thanks, Kara. Jay, tell us about this psychic sting operation.
0: <laughs> yeah, this was uh, – I would consider this to be a huge win. So you guys, uh, we've talked about guerrilla skeptics in the past, right? So guerrilla skeptics is um, – run by Susan Gerbic. Also, I mentioned Rob Palmer before on the show. He's a friend of mine. Um, he actually did a, interview, a series of interviews with me recently. You can see on our Facebook page or, or look him up on Facebook. So Gorilla Skeptics it has done some sting operations. And the recent one that they did, an article in the New York Times was written about it, and I thought this was a really cool thing to mention. So Susan Gerbic and Mark Edward and a few of their cohorts came up with an idea that they're going to create a, some Facebook presences that are fake, okay? They put in an un- enough time on them that if you went to it, you would get the sense like, yeah, this person's been on Facebook for a while, right? It didn't want to look like a you know, brand new Facebook profile.
2: Oh, like so they the were Russian bots.
0: Right. So they're doing things like pictures of, of dinner, uh, silly cat pictures, messages to other friends and things like that. And then, of course, they were dropping fake information that was posed as real. Like as an example, one of these fake Facebook uh, sites was um like talking about a twin brother that had died, talking about family members and pets and things like that. So then um this was all in preparation to pull off a, a sting operation on a psychic. Now I'm not sure if they had Thomas John as their target from the very beginning, but Thomas John ended up being the psychic that they decided to do this with. And, they bought VIP tickets to go to Thomas John's local to them, local. And I, so I think Thomas John had a, you know, a seminar, or whatever you would want to call it as a live psychic reading um, in California. And they bought tickets. They bought VIP tickets, which, which put them, I think, in the first rows. And I think the um, unspoken idea here is if you buy a VIP ticket, that you are going to get some time, you know, some reading time from, from Thomas John. So, they go in under these fake personas. So this was Susan and Mark that went in. They sit down in the third row and eventually Thomas John says, you know, I'm getting the sense that there is, a you know, someone here um, that had a twin or whatever. And Susan gives the appropriate like, oh, you know, response, whatever, you know, like a, a gasp or whatever. And he goes on to essentially talk about all the information that they put on the fake Facebook pages. Which means that he did a hot reading, right? So a cold reading is when you throw out a bunch of nonsense, like I'm seeing an M or a J, which just happens to be very, very uh, common letters of people's first names, you know, like Mark and Mary and, you know, the, that type of thing. Those are cold reading things that, that you could throw out you know I, somebody here who had a parent who died from something in the chest or the head? Well, yeah, pretty <laughs> much everybody dies with something from the chest or the head that 's the old the old yeah. standby that 's a cold reading. A hot reading is when you do research on someone, and today it 's very easy to do research on someone. I mean you could find most people on Facebook or some social media presence or on LinkedIn or on you know a dozen other websites where people you know go to have discussions. Facebook is probably like just the most fantastic resource. And he did. Thomas John, as a matter of fact, went there and collected all of this bogus information and, and was naming specific things like the name of the dog and how did the twin brother die and a lot of other details that were all in there. And Susan was actually uh, thinking like even she didn't know 100 percent of the information that was on the profile Meaning that she went in there with the only portion of the information memorized because she thought it would be interesting if, if the psychic ended up knowing more about her character than she did, which he did. Now, get this. According to the New York Times article, Thomas John was previously known as Lady Vera Parker, and he was a drag queen in Chicago who later got into some trouble. I guess his real name is Thomas John Flanagan. That's his legal name. Um, He was charged for theft and fined and sentenced to probation. And this is the past. This is this very famous Hollywood psychic, you know, Courtney Cox and Julianne Moore. uh, Paid this man money to give them psychic readings. You know, this guy has a very sketchy background. You know, he rebranded himself, reinvented himself as a a psychic that talks to the dead, which is, you know, it's a two billion dollar industry, by the way, and he's heavily dipping into. So. The the story ends with they fully bust they fully bust him as a fake. They didn't call him out during the show, which I would have, you know, I would have thought there would be a little bit more, you know, drama involved, but I, I don't know if they wanted to go down that route. But they did essentially prove that he is conducting hot readings. Thomas John's response to the entire thing was, "I had my eyes closed the entire time. I didn't know who I was talking about or who I was, you know, re- referencing in the audience." You know, I talked to a lot of the dead and, you know, throw out a lot of information. So, yeah, you know, I wasn't sure who it even was. Like that yeah, was his All big of which is BS. That's
1: about as good as the other guy's defense, you know, just deflecting. Yeah. No, they caught him red-handed doing a hot reading, period. Yep. that's it. That's it. There's really no other explanation for his performance.
0: And, you know, I guess the, the, the question here is how do we get that information out to the general public? Well, being published in the New York Times is fantastic, you know, in New York Times magazine. That's fantastic. Yeah. But it doesn't happen all the time. There really isn't an app, is not an appetite for this type of thing. You know, like people want to hear the drama and want to hear the the hot and sexy and they don't want to hear the stone cold facts. Now this story happens to be fun and interesting and and that makes it effective and i applaud their work i mean i think it's just fantastic that that they're they're doing this because you know there's a lot of people that do a lot of, of a lot of writing online you know we we are an online podcast we you know our our specialty is something quite different than what they're doing they're doing guerrilla skeptics work on wikipedia you know correcting wikipedia pages that that's also you know exceptional and we need that to be done but doing this field work is fun. But I think a lot of people realize that it's, it's hard to make it have teeth. You know, you could go and bust, you know, one fake psychic or, you know, I shouldn't even have to put the word fake in front of that, but you bust <laughs> a psychic here and there, you know, some ghost hunter shenanigans or whatever. Um, it doesn't stop it. You know, they're rubber duckies. They, they come back. These people usually come back and then more of, more people will, will replace them. The bigger the market is, the more people that will appear. So, you know, I question whether or not, it'll have legs or really do anything but i was really thoroughly entertained and wowed by their success here
1: yeah it was a good job and again it's good to to cuz they didn't just like have him fail at a reading or give a fake you know previous things of like you give a fake persona and they go with it cuz it's really easy to wiggle out of it they showed he cheated mm-hmm. and really cheating is the only way to explain his performance so that's pretty pretty clear and the other clever control they did was as as Jay said, you know she didn't have all the information in her head, so they, he can't claim he was reading her mind. Yeah. So they they really did,
0: God, you know, nice.
1: dot their eyes and cross their t's right. here. They had to have been doing a hot reading.
0: Well, without a doubt. I mean, all that yeah. he had to do was say one thing that was from the Facebook page that was untrue, that was manufactured, and that's a hot reading because yeah. that's the only source in the world to get that piece of information. But it was extensive. Right. All right. Thanks, Jay. You got it. All
1: right. I'm just going to talk about uh, a quick news item about uh, Canada sending homeopaths to Honduras. What is that? (laughs) So this is part of a a program, an aid program that Quebec has. It's Quebec-based, like Doctors Without Frontiers kind of thing. They give money through Global Affairs Canada. And since 2015, they've been giving $70,000 every year in order to send homeopaths to poor countries like Honduras to deliver homeopathic medicine, you know, to the indigenous populations, including treating serious infectious diseases like Chagas disease and other viral Mm -hmm. infections, essentially using it instead of actual protection, just fake homeopathic Mm -hmm. remedies. I mean, this kind of thing is not new. Uh, I know, I'm sure, you know, all of our listeners know that homeopathy is 100% fake. It's magic water. It's not, quote-unquote, natural medicine or herbal medicine, whatever. It's magic water. You take yeah. crazy, nonsensical ingredients, you dilute them out of existence, and the, the essence is supposed to be left behind. They're, it's potions. It's magic potions. And they've been studied to death despite the fact that they can't work, and in fact, they don't work. You know, multiple systematic reviews have shown, yep, yeah, there's not one single indication for which homeopathic potions have been shown to work. Of course, because they're magic potions. So the idea that a government, under the auspices of an aid program, is sending homeopathic quacks, you know, to a, a poor country, is so exploitative uh, and you know wrong on so many levels. But it's this nice little microcosm of everything that's wrong with the alternative medicine movement, uh, mm-hmm. and and this con game that they've been able to pull off over the last few decades. The idea that they've been able to infiltrate enough that they could swindle a government into thinking that, you know, treating them as if they're legitimate. Uh, The person who is heading this program is uh, Carla Marcellus. She is a naturopath. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Also an HIV denier. So that's another aspect of this, you know, where one type of quackery tends to go along with other types of quackery. You know, it's a birds of the feather, birds of a feather kind of phenomenon. I
2: wonder how she's handling the new HIV news.
1: About the the second case of a possible yeah. eradication, <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I guess it's easy to eradicate
1: it if it doesn't exist. Yeah, right, right, right. So, there's, you know, they are getting some blowback. They are getting some pushback from actual physicians and scientists who are criticizing them for doing this. But, and this is always the most uh, disappointing part the the Global Affairs uh, Organization is doubling down. Right, they're actually defending this in the face of criticism.
2: Why? Uh, What are they saying?
1: Well, here's the quote, right? This is spokesperson Megan Graveline. The World Health Organization and Pan American Health Organization in in its 2014-2023 strategy encouraged the integration of traditional medicine and complementary medicine, including homeopathy, into national health systems. So they're just using the, the, the World Health Organization, the WHO, as cover, Which is bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's just total bullshit because, well, first of all, the WHO, while, you know, obviously a very useful and important organization for world health, they're unfortunately very political. And this is one blind spot that they have where in the name of being respectful to every country, including indigenous populations. So we were just talking about this, Kara, right recently on the show, you know, quote unquote, traditional medicine. It's like, all right, it's all Mm -hmm. good. We're going to be non-judgmental about traditional or indigenous medicine, which I think is a mistake because it's, they're doing it in the wrong way, in the exact way that we said you shouldn't do it. Exactly, yeah. You know. It's
2: like, yeah, definitely. Like, you can utilize this as a psychological tool to get through to people and bring them legitimate medicine, or you can basically bring magic water to people and then watch them die.
1: Right, and that's the other thing, is that homeopathy is not traditional or indigenous anything, right? This is a, yeah. this is a Western system of, of medicine that was invented couple hundred years ago in Austria, and uh, it just happens to be one that's wrong, right? It doesn't work. It never has worked. It's not based on legitimate scientific principles. And so this is actually true colonialism because we are exporting a belief system, a religious style belief system to other cultures. This is Mm -hmm. not traditional medicine, right? This is just magic. Western and it's, so
2: it's it's like that much more gross and yeah. racist to like utilize that as some sort of cover, like, oh no, we're just bringing this to indigenous peoples because it's what they want. It's like, mm. oh God, it's right. just such an abuse.
1: And again, it's another example also of diversion, right? You know, trying to reference traditional medicine or the World Health Organization or whatever. The fact is homeopathy is quackery. Straight up, no other reasonable interpretation. And we, mm-hmm. no government has any business sponsoring it, supporting it, paying for it, promoting it in any way. And of course, Canada is not alone in this. They, it's infiltrated m- most countries, including the United States. The FDA and the FTC have been tightening up their regulations of it recently, but not anywhere near to the point where it needs to be, um, it should just straight up be banned.
2: Yeah. You know, because it's, fa- so. it's
1: fake medicine. There's, yeah. there's no reason that it should be, it should not be sold as medicine in any way.
2: No, and it's not, you know, it's not like some sort of, you know, we, we talked about obviously it's not indigenous and it's also not some sort of kind of like therapy, no. It's not, you know, cuz sometimes that can be a little bit more arguable with placebo and things like that. But like no, it's like people like, "Oh, I'll take the homeopathic version of a cold medicine or the mm. homeopathic version of a of an antibiotic." Or no, 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 all those things are fake and then you're not going to get better. And either your own immune system is going to work and then you're going to go see the homeopathy worked, which it didn't, or you're just going to get sicker.
3: Yeah. Why don't we just balance their humors? Right.
2: Exactly. We might as well. Yeah. Ah. I get and what can be done? I mean yeah. that's this
0: is where skeptics need to be on the forefront to, to educate people. I, I bet you a lot of times people don't even know what they're supporting you know they don't, don't know how much BS it is
1: yeah I mean I think they, we, we do need to give pushback so if you live in Canada especially Quebec, write to your representative and express your outrage you know yeah. that, that this is happening but it's unfortunate because you need a certain level of scientific literacy and that's there's very little of that in politics so it's really difficult to deal with issues like this. Whereas they're very attuned to like issues of cultural sensitivity. Like, okay, they'll get that, but that, you know, the medical treatments need to be based on science. What science? You know, it's easy to find cover. That's the, that's the unfortunate thing is that they've infiltrated enough that now they have cover. So now they could just sort of self sustain. They have licensed professionals who are quacks like naturopaths, you know, using systems of medicine that have their own journals and companies and et cetera. So it's like the, it's like the, the fake psychologist, right? Kara Psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. They have yeah. the trappings of legitimacy. They're all fake though. Yep. But all right. Now we're going to turn from that to some real science, Bob, where we're going to be using <laughs> some nanotechnology to give us superpowers.
3: Yes. Scientists have developed <laughs> a nanoparticle injection for mice to allow them to see infrared light for 10 days. Now let that wait, wait, wait. let that marinate light for th- let they can that, see for ten days. See infrared light for ten days. Just let that uh, uh, oh, be quiet. It's let not that, permanent. Let that marinate in your mind a moment. Just think about that. <laughs> That's right. Supervision for mice. For ten days. For ten days. <laughs> so is that the shit right there or what? I saw this a week ago. <laughs> a week ago I and I emailed everybody. Nobody touches this but me. <laughs> 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 so uh, this, this was developed at the University of Science and Technology of China as well as the University of Massachusetts Medical School and was recently published in a recent issue of the journal Cell. Okay. So I know you're all chomping at the bit to hear some details. I, I don't. Oh, yes. I don't hear any chomping, but okay, that's good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, all right, it, it all starts. It all starts. You have to un- appreciate photoreceptors, what they are. Photoreceptors in the retina, which are basically cells, as in rods and cones. We've we've, we've heard of those terms all the time. And uh, what they are is they're, they're these cells are capable of what's something called phototransduction. So that just means that they can take photons of light and convert them to electrical signals that the rest of the brain can then use you know, to build our visual interpretation of reality, essentially. So now our rods and cones can only interact with a tiny, tiny slice of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, what we call, obviously enough, the visible spectrum. And th- there's so much more information out there beyond what's in that tiny little sliver, but we can't sense it unless we use uh, the technology that we've, that we've developed to, to, to show us what these, these other radiations that our eyes just can't pick up. Now, infrared light consists of slightly longer wavelengths of light. Ju- this is just outside the red end of, of the visible spectrum. And th- that wavelength is essentially just too long for our photoreceptors to transduce it. So uh, the infrared is invisible to us. Now, to prevent emails on this point, yes, there have been some experiments that have shown that if uh, you use rapid pulses of infrared laser light, uh, it can be seen. The conditions are, are just perfect. Uh, if And if the photoreceptors get a quick, like, double hit of infrared energy, there, it is possible to, to see glimpses of infrared in those scenarios. But this is very, very different.
2: You mean like in human beings?
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, cool. I looked at some studies. I could see that. But this, this is different. This is a, a different beast. I just didn't want to categorically say we do not see infrared because uh, yeah. it's not necessarily technically 100% correct. So back to the mice. Uh, and this is where the nanotechnology comes in. Uh, these scientists, bless their hearts, created nanoparticles that bind tightly to the rods and cones. And th- this, is, this, is the, this is the meat of it right here. These particles are little infrared transducers. They convert the longer wavelength of infrared radiation to shorter wavelength green light, which is then absorbed by the cones and processed normally, uh, which results in the perception of green light. So that's it. It's taking the longer wavelength Infrared light and making it into shorter wavelength light that we could actually deal with. That was something we do do every day, basically down-converting it, down-transducing it into the visible spectrum. So this is exactly what the scientists did uh, with the mice, uh, which are perfect for this test since they can't see infrared either. They injected what I'm calling the superhero formula chemical X. Nobody Ooh. else is calling it that, but that, I'm calling it that. Uh, they <laughs> they inject uh, the nanoparticles into the retina. Now that part doesn't sound too cool, but whatever. <laughs> and and for ten days they're able to see infrared light even in the even d- in daylight in in, in regular light uh, with with minimal they they claim minimal side effects. One of the side effects they saw was temporary clouding of the cornea, uh, but it also happened with the control mice, so it was it didn't have anything to do with the. Uh, uh, superhero formula Chemical X that they injected,
0: yeah, Bob, how the hell do they know what the mice saw? Are they showing them something that they have to react to? Good question, Jay. They filled out questionnaires. No, they did not <laughs> actually, the mice
3: received uh, the mice that received the active uh, injection they had to go by involuntary reactions um, that they had to the infrared light, apparently, so uh basically something like constriction of the pupils when they saw the infrared light, their pupils would constrict the the control mice did not. Uh, that's one example. Another one, they use mazes in specific ways to show that the mice could see the infrared light in, in the daylight at the same time that they saw regular light. So this is something that, that was easily, you know, readily apparent for them even even in the daylight. So they can get some really good indications that they, has, they are seeing something uh, that they wouldn't, uh, that the control mice were not seeing. In the future, so in once, one of the scientists said, in our study, we have shown that both rods and cones bind these nanoparticles and were activated by the near infrared light. So we believe this technology will also work in human eyes, not only for generating supervision, but also yeah. for the therapeutic solutions uh, in humans uh, with a red like red color vision deficits. Well I guess that's kind of nice too, I guess. He said supervision. He said those two words, supervision. This was a scientist. These these findings could lead to advancements in in human infrared vision technologies, obviously, um, including applications in civilian encryption. Uh, security and military operations, and of course, the formation of the Justice League. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, this is so fascinating. I, I keep thinking of trying to extrapolate. Okay, they, they've pretty much shown that they could attach these nanoparticles to the photoreceptors and let you perceive other wavelengths of light, um, as they, as they are, you know, transduced into visible light. You know, what else can they do that with? Uh, what, you know, what other types of energies maybe can they do that with? Or what, what kind of information can we get from, uh, from, from electromagnetic radiation that we're not getting now? It's just really just so interesting and fascinating. Uh, I'm really going to try to track this and see, see where this leads. But hey, I mean, it seems like this will probably. You know, work on people. I don't see any anything blatant that's like yelling red alert. That this, you know, this may not translate into people. I mean, they've got very similar photoreceptors that to 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 humans, to people. The nanoparticles are binding to them, and they're seeing something. You know, they're they're seeing something that they weren't uh, seeing before. I you know I wonder how long it's going to take, or if they're ever going to get to stages where they're going to try this on people, especially uh, since they have these applications. Well, like I said, um, they have uh, people with uh, with red color vision deficits. You know, you could actually help people with certain deficits.
1: But yeah, Um, but you have to get an injection in your eye every ten days.
3: (laughs) Well, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't sound very good to me. I believe me, I've had (laughs) I've had injections in my eyelids many times. That's a freaky experience. Yeah, that's maybe they can have a, another delivery mechanism. I don't, I don't see why, why that, that's something that, that's not, uh, feasible or, uh, you know, knock the patient out. Like, all right, knock me out, wake me up when that, all that nasty stuff is, uh, is done. But imagine, you know, imagine, like they said, uh, civilian encryption and security and things, you know, that's a, those are some big generic topics that, uh, people will do many things, uh, even taking an injection in the eye if it has to do with some interesting, uh, uh, encryption security or military operations. If you're ordered to get an injection in your eye, eh, you know, not not a hell of a lot you can do about it except quit. Like, like, <laughs> oh, I'll they do can anything, take but volunteers. I won't get a needle in the eye. Yeah.
1: Like like SEALs before going out on a mission, they get the injection, they got their night vision for ten for ten days.
3: There you go. It's just Weird. a fascinating idea that I never I never really thought of. Like, you know, how would that work? I mean, is that really a thing? And damn man, that's pretty pretty fascinating. I I love it. Love it if you didn't notice.
0: I mean, I would let them test on me as long as it didn't ruin anything. I would, I would love to see colors I've never, received, I've well, never seen. Well, that's, before. that's it. Yeah, that.
3: you're not. You're not going to. Uh, I thought about that. You're not. You're not going to be seeing colors you never saw before. This is basically taking. It's taking colors that you can't see and making them into colors you can see. So these mice are seeing green. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if they looked at people, I would think since people are essentially heat engines um i think people would 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 have this green tinge or i don't know how bright it would be and they talked about different you know different ways to do this to make it even brighter but yeah so it's not like you're going to be seeing this wow this is a color i've never i've never seen before it, that that's what infrared looks like no they're not doing that i mean they're not changing the mechanisms uh of your of the photoreceptors they're just you know transducing infrared to visible light that's that's it in a nutshell so yeah so you don't even know if you're seeing
0: infrared then you know
3: no, well, they well, it depends. It depends on the on the nanoparticle. The, these this specific nanoparticle is was designed to take specific frequencies of infrared and transduce it down into a specific frequencies of green. So you would be seeing green. So if you looked at a person and they look green, if their face look, you know, their exposed skin looked green, yeah, you could be pretty damn sure that uh, that that injection is is making you see the infrared. I mean, it's a
2: pretty but I feel pretty like solid evidence. You, you would evidence. adapt to that really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like within a day or so, it'd be like, yeah, that's just what people look like.
3: Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wonder uh, how how sensitive it is. I mean, could you see, you know, a uh, body heat through uh, through a wall? I mean, is it that sensitive? I don't I don't know what kind of uh, wavelengths you would need to be sensitive to to see something like that. But uh, who knows what the limits of this is? It's but imagine. I mean, this is a precedent. They are now attaching nanoparticles to photoreceptors. I mean, and this is just the first real big test. On, on live animals that I'm aware of. I mean, how far can this go? What other kind of nanoparticles can you attach to photoreceptors? I mean, I mean, imagine like little computers attached to photoreceptors, really yeah. really tweaking the information that the the rods and cones are, are receiving and really manipulating your your vision yeah. in dramatic ways. I mean, this is just the first wave of what's possible. Uh, it's really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, this is a very interesting proof of concept. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Cyborg me, man. Yeah. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombus
0: Socks. It's kind of funny when you think, like, do you put any time into thinking about your socks? Like, how, how much time do you actually spend thinking about your socks? I do now. Well, I do now because of Bombus. And, and what I mean, it sounds funny, but we're dead serious. We absolutely love these socks. That's it. What can we say other than they're fantastic?
1: Yeah, they're really, really comfortable and they're very engineered. They're made of super soft cotton. They have arch support, seamless toe, you know, cushioning at the feet, all these little details that just give you a much better comfortable fit. And it does, you know, it impacts your quality of life, you know, to the extent that that your feet comfort is important to you. And as an as the cherry on top, uh, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair of socks to someone in need.
0: This is all you got to do. You can buy your Bombas socks at bombus dot com slash skeptics. That's B O M B A S. dot com slash skeptics today and get your twenty percent off your first purchase, guys. Give them a shot because I'm telling you, Steve and I and everybody else at the SGU have these. We love them and they are fantastic. You're going to love them.
1: All right, guys. Let's get back to the show. All right, Jay,
0: it's Who's That Noisy time. Guys, last week I played this noisy. What's your guesses, guys?
2: <laughs> some
3: sort of insect? <laughs> yeah, doing a flyby. I see some Doppler Doppler ship there, it seems.
2: Yeah, it definitely feels entomological.
0: Well, Timothy Blahout uh, guessed. He said, hey, guys, that sounds like the sound of a ship's screw heard from underwater. The sound comes from the collapse ah. of the cavitation bubbles created by the turning screw.
3: Cavitation, baby.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so this is, I don't even know. What Timothy's talking about, I have to look that up because I don't know what a ship screw is. (laughs) The screw is a propeller, isn't it? Oh, is that what he's talking about? Oh, of course, yes, yes, he's right. I was thinking like a screw,
2: like a like a Phillips. Yes, no,
0: that's exactly right. I don't know why I forgot that. Yeah, you're totally right. Cavitation bubbles are the bubbles that come off of the uh, yeah. Okay, and then they could,
3: and then they could. uh, I think they could actually, uh, they could collapse and, and make a
0: lot and be very detectable. Well, that isn't it, but that's cool, and I know I know what you're talking about now. Brad uh, Pankinen wrote in and said, I think this week's noisy is a flying insect bumping up against a microphone, and I thought that was cool, because, especially because you guys said that it sounded like maybe an insect flying by. I didn't uh, think it sounded
2: c- like it was flying. Okay. I did. Just like, a, like an insect noise. Insectile. Okay,
0: well, you and Brad heard something similar. That is also incorrect. Oh, okay. But a a, um, provocative guess. Um, It's almost like the insect would have been – the sound would have been slowed down, I guess, on on, uh, some level. And then Blake Martin guessed, I believe this week's noisy, is a woodpecker hitting a hollow piece of wood causing it to reverberate. (laughs) And I thought that was a cool guess too because if you listen to it thinking of that, you you can kind of hear like the – but there is like a repetitive clicking noise in there. Uh, But that is also incorrect. So the closest we got to a winner. We didn't actually have someone fully guess. But uh, uh, Zan von Ackerman said, Greetings, skeptics. This week's noisy is cool. I'm guessing that this is taken from a hydrophone. You guys know what a hydrophone Underwater is? Underwater microphone? Good guess, Bob. And the clicking is the sound <laughs> yeah, of the recorder's I know. I'm just messing <laughs> with you. The clicking was the sound of the recorder shaking in the housing from the strength of the sound vibrations as it seems to get louder proportionately to the humming sound. Damn, um, cool. This is indeed a sound from underwater. Um but what this actually is is the is the sound of a blue whale. Oh,
1: wow. No. wow.
0: A blue whale talking, yes. Now what's cool is um somebody emailed me and said that they know what the blue whale was saying. Send more Chuck, Chuck Berry? The, no, the blue the blue whale was saying enough of the plastic in the ocean for yeah. crying out loud. That enough. Yep. Yes. That's why he sounds lamentful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So stop with the plastic. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm a little bitter. Okay. You did pick that up. Yep. So uh, Zan, thank you for, for almost completely winning, but that was damn close. And uh, Jacob, thanks for sending that one in. Yeah. So take a listen again. Definitely some type of sad lament, I think. We have a new noisy this week, guys. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Matt Sutter. What is this? This is another one of those things, one of those noisies where, tell me what's happening. If you think you know what this week's noisy is, or if you heard something cool, if you heard something fantastic... Or something that you think I might like, email me at wtn at org. Guys, several announcements for everyone. So real quick, July 11th to 14th, 2019. This year, guys, this is Nexus 2019, July 11th to 14th. So Mary Roach will be at the conference, and it's going to be a really good. We're going to hear from her this year. It's going to be very good. Registration opens Tuesday, March 12th. So we have um, keynote Carl Zimmer, Author of books such as Parasite Rex, Microcosm, A Planet of Viruses, and most recently, she has her mother's laugh. Mm-hmm. And as I said, Mary Roach, again, will be there. She's the author of Grunt, Stiff, Packing for Mars, Bonk, and other cool books.
2: Favorite uh, author, have, favorite modern author.
0: Yes, wow. she's fantastic. Yeah, she's Debbie amazing. Goddard, secular activist and vice president of programs at American Atheists. And we
1: just confirmed Paul Offit will be speaking for us. He is the author of multiple excellent books, including Bad Advice, Pandora's Lab, Bad Faith, Do You Believe in Magic about Alternative Medicine, Deadly Choices about the anti-vaccine movement, Autism's False Prophets, and a couple others. Uh, he will be giving us an update on all the anti-vaccine nonsense.
0: Of course, the SGU will be there. We're going to be doing a full a full show on the main stage. We're going to be doing a private show, which you can purchase, purchase tickets to. And Gio is going to join us. George Robb, ladies and gentlemen, one of my good friends, George, will be joining us for the Skeptical Extravaganza. If you don't know what that is, um, I have two shows of the Skeptical Extravaganza coming up. One of them, of course, will be at Nexus. It'll be one of the nighttime events at Nexus. So go to NECSS.org to buy your tickets. Now, the other extravaganza we'll be doing. Steve, what do you think about this other show that we're gonna be doing?
1: Yeah, that's uh April twenty-seventh in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And this one's gonna be fun. This is a whole day of silliness and science and skepticism. Uh we're gonna in the morning we're doing a live a live action role-playing event with the SGU. That is sold out. We sold wow. that out already. Uh, then we're going to be doing a, a, a recording, an SG recording like a private show followed by a music set with George in the evening program and then capped off by an extravaganza.
0: So the extravaganza real quick is it's a variety show uh, based on science and critical thinking where we do lots of fun different skits and everything and you'll you'll pretty much know all of the pop culture things that we talk about. Um, it's a lot of fun and it's really just le- – it's just for fun. It's just a lot of laughter and, and craziness that we do. So if you would like to learn more about that show, you need to go to the it's no show, which is K N O W S H O W dot eventbrite dot com. That's no show dot dot com to check out the tickets for that. We hope to see you at both of those events coming up. Yep. And while I'm talking about events, I have emailed and heard back from the curator of the Star Trek Museum. Oh boy, I know what I'm getting at. Talk to me. So we are in the middle of talking about whether or not this is feasible. Which means there is not a no happening. It's just a feasibility, a test of feasibility. We are we are in the middle of doing scientific experiments on whether or not we can hold our four thousand patron, twelve hour live feed show at the Star Trek Museum which is in upstate New York. Um, so if you don't know what I'm talking about when the SGU hits 4000 patrons we we are going to do a 12-hour live stream for everyone as a thank you and we are going to hopefully be holding it at the Star Trek Museum. I am blown away by this. But I am not as blown away by the custom Star Wars blaster which was made to me, made for me by a dear friend of mine at Weta Workshops named David Tremont. You guys know who David is? Oh, who doesn't oh, know yeah. David, man?
1: Of course. Well we know who he is.
0: Yeah so, yeah. yeah. so the SGU knows David because David hosted us at Weta previously. And David, you know, he is a fantastic model maker and prop builder, and he was on vacation so and he got he got bored on vacation and built a prop. And he said, Do you like this? I said, My God, yes. What do you think it is? And I said, That looks like it's in the Star Wars universe. I believe it predates movie four. Probably, you know, two to five hundred years or something like that. I was just, you know, throwing out like <laughs> my gut told me. He goes, that's exactly when I was. You, you, I'm going to. This is yours. Whoa. You can have it.
3: Ah, no are way, you kidding Jay. me?
0: Yes. And then um we were talking to David further. You and David him said, like
3: you yeah, he
0: know, he knows, Bob. But David and I turned a corner here. There's something going on between the two of us now <laughs> called blasters. David kind of promised to make on? a yes, without a doubt. He sent me a video on how to reconstruct it, and I did it note for note. I didn't have to pause his video once. That's how good his build was, and that's how easy it was to reconstruct it. He thought it was going to be hard. It was very easy. David is making us a Star Trek, the original series, laser, phaser, prop, whatever, that looks like it's going to belong in the original Star Trek universe, but it's going to be brand new. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's it's going to go on the set, and it's going to be with us. But we're going to help them design on our it. on our twelve. Yes, we're going to help design it, and it's and it's going to be with us on our tour uh, on the on the Star Trek twelve hour live show that we hope is going to be at the museum. My God! So if you want to help us reach this goal, guys, please go to our Patreon at www.patreon.com patreon. dot com slash skeptics guide. All right, thanks, Jay. I got a number of emails. This is kind of a name, not
1: logical fallacy, but also when I expanded into an email, several people, for whatever reason, sent us emails about global warming, I guess because the topic is in the news again recently. And I'm going to read just one short piece of one and then talk about some of the main points that have been coming up. So this one comes from TJD and TJ writes, I listened to your latest podcast and your talk about conspiracy theory and climate change came up. Who the hell cares? AOC is screeching we only have 12 years before we all die. I am by all means no genius and I am a lousy wordsmith, but I have common sense and if there is climate change, a new phrase is being marketed, planet change, stop blaming America. The problem is India and China. All right. So there's a few things to unpack there. Any logical fallacies jump out at you
3: guys? There's a lack of context uh, fallacy. I mean, what the hell?
2: (laughs) Well, isn't it the one where he? Okay, help me find this one where it's like something is real and it's actually happening. But instead of saying, "Okay, this is a thing that's real and it's happening," I'm just going to blame somebody else.
1: Well, so it, you know, the, all logical fallacies are non sequiturs. That's a good go to. Yeah. It's it's a it's partly a straw man because we're not blaming America. No one is yeah, saying this is America's fault. Yeah. That, that part of it, the blaming America is a straw man. This is the world's problem. Uh, America is the second highest emitter of CO2. China just beat us out not too long ago. So China's number one. America's number two. I think India is number three. So how can you say they're the problem, we're not the problem? Well, the three of us are the problem. We're one, two, and three. And the whole world is the problem. We have to look at total CO2 production. No one is saying – blaming America, saying it's our problem. But the implication there is, and this is kind of a two quoque fallacy, but also a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. The idea is, well, because other people are also you know, contributing to the problem, we don't have to do anything.
2: Yeah, it's like this. Well, until China changes their policies – we shouldn't work on trying to reduce emissions. Yeah, and, and, is, and a, yet they've
3: all—they're all members of the Paris Accord, but except except we're
2: not. So it's bananas for a million reasons.
1: Yeah, the thing is, you know, it's like, oh, why, why shouldn't I steal? Everyone else is stealing. It's like that. We, we all have to take responsibility for ourselves to some point. You know, America's responsible for America. China's responsible for China. So us pointing at them is is not really. Uh, very constructive, right? And again, well, you, it's
2: also like being like the work, you know, like this room is on fire and my hose only reaches one corner, so I might as well not use it. Yeah. Because nobody wants to put out the fire in the other corner. It's like, I'd rather be have one section that's not <laughs> on fire. Let's like do our part. Yeah.
1: I mean, what, to whatever extent we reduce CO2 production, it will reduce the problem. Yeah. So there's also then that means. Is the other implications of that is what we call it—the Nirvana fallacy, where the perfect is the enemy of the good. Right? It's like, well, this isn't perfect, so right, what's the right. point? It's like this yeah, is this is yeah, not yeah. going to completely solve the problem, so why do anything? Well, it'll make it less bad. Less bad is is good. Good, you know. <laughs>
2: yeah, and that kind of also compares to isn't there some fallacy that's like a black or white thinking. Yeah. Like the all or nothing kind yeah, of. Yeah, false approach. dichotomy. Yeah, it's false yeah. dichotomy. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Like, well, unless we can completely solve it 100%, which obviously we can't because, you know, some countries don't want to work on it, us, <clears throat> us, then we might as well not do anything.
1: Mm-hmm. The uh, reference to like the new phrase being planet change. Again, it's a it's yeah, kind of a straw man non sequitur, but it's partly poisoning the well. It's like, oh look, they're change, they're marketing it, you know, as a different. That it's, the implica- by implication, you're trying to say this is all marketing because oh, they're coming. Really? First oh, of all, okay. I've never heard planet change. I don't know where I mean, they're yeah, getting. I've never
3: heard it either.
2: But even if they, I mean, I guess the idea behind it would be it's not just that the climate's getting worse; it's that the ocean is acidifying, it's rising. Like there are things other, yeah. than, you know, these are outcomes of the climate changing. That's not That has not taken I, hold. I, I, yeah, I've never even heard that.
1: And then the reference to AOC, that's to, you know, Ocasio-Cortez. Mm. So that's very – we talked about this actually fairly recently, the idea of referring to an outlier as if they are the mainstream. And I looked it up and she is – quote. I did find an article quoting her as saying the world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. You know, that's a silly thing to say. And yeah, it, but it's also, very imprecise. I mean, what do you mean by the world? First of all, it's not going to end in 12 years. And what do you even also, mean by Also, are we sure that? she
2: wasn't just saying that to be inflammatory? Like, I, I don't think she hyperbole? actually believes the
1: – Yeah, the earth is ending Yeah, but it's Yeah, but it's, it's, it's very, I think, amateurish to say something like that. It,
0: Absolutely. It's caustic. It's ridiculous. Even like,
1: if it, it is hyperbole, this is not the kind of a debate where we want, to, we want hyperbole. You know why? Because then deniers will reference that as, see, they're all crazy.
2: No, of course, but was this like what is the context context? of the quote? Was she in the middle of a conversation and she's like, guys, the world's gonna end in what, like twelve years if we don't do something? We've gotta get on this. Like, was this just a verbal thing or did she write it? That's a very different thing. No, she said it. She said it
1: in a speech. Well, she said that she and other young Americans fear, quote, the world is going to end in twelve years if we don't address climate change.
2: Yeah. I mean she's speaking in hyperbole. I don't know. Yeah, whatever, but
1: it's just you gotta be careful. You gotta be careful.
0: I just I just don't it's so it's such a precise number for something that doesn't have that kind of precision,
2: of course, but at a certain point you can't live your life on the defensive
1: no, I agree, but but if your job she's a politician, if mm-hmm. your job is promoting a certain point of view, you have to do it in an effective way, and you know not feeding your opponents with hyperbole and and statements that are easily portrayed as being on the fringe is just part of that it's part of effective communication that was not effective communication
2: all right i i think that you know there's a difference between what we wish a politician would do and what a politician oh, effectively does no politicians
1: no politician does what I wish they would do. I mean, there's exactly. no politician out there who does that. That doesn't mean I give him a pass.
2: I think the the fault lies with this guy who's attacking
1: that Oh yeah. Talking, that clearly, thing she said. clearly, clearly. But listen, I, I'm I part of our job is to be effective communicators. I've criticized people for being not being careful about how they talk about vaccines, you know, even when they're on our side, they just say things that's not literally true. You have to be careful. You're going to be feeding the the propaganda machine on the other side. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Part I mean, of it, the job. It's part of the job, in my opinion.
2: It's part of the job. But at a certain point, there the eggshells are going to break, no matter how gingerly you walk. Yeah,
1: but you but you don't so. want to make it easy on them. Yeah, uh, right. I've gotten other emails, so I just want to bring up a couple of points. So still talking points, you know, global warming denial talking points. Uh, one email that was linking to someone else, and he, he wasn't necessarily making these points; just saying what. I'm having a conversation with this other guy. What do you think about this? Mm -hmm. Had a a long screed about uh, the consensus Mm -hmm. and linked to an article. Linked to an article. It was from you know. I I always I always click through. Right, the article. It turns out was from 2012. It was a survey of members of the American Meteorological Association. So it's – like very superficially, it sounds like, oh, yeah, I guess the consensus isn't as strong as we thought. Like only 36 percent say think it's really a problem. But first of all, you have to recognize that only about a third of the members of this organization are actually climate scientists. So it it seems a lot more on the nose than it is. And then also that's a seven-year-old survey. And if you look at a recent survey in the last seven years – uh, or at least the last five or six years for which we have data, the needle has been moving profoundly in the direction mm-hmm. of accepting climate change to the point where, yeah, now 95% of them like, yeah, it's happening. You know, Man-made climate change is a thing, and it's probably a problem. Like 90% say, yeah, we are concerned about this. So they're using old data that is not as – uh, specific as it is, you know, it's really a lot of engineers and people who aren't really climate scientists are, are, are members or they're planet scientists, but not really dealing with the climate or the weather. And so that's cherry picking, right? And then they're also ignoring all the other studies out there. The other thing that I see climate uh, deniers do is they point to the one study as if there's one study that made the 97% consensus point, and then they debunk that thinking that they've debunked this notion at 97%. But there's actually been multiple studies, six or seven surveys looking at the data in different ways. And 97% is the consensus of those studies. That's that's about the average figure that we come down to.
2: It's such a weird thing to obsess over, too. It's like, okay, maybe it's 96, maybe it's 98. It's most of them.
1: Yeah, but they're trying to say it's 30, you know, or whatever yeah. that is. But it, no, it, that, that number is totally fake. It isn't.
2: Yeah, that's like based on nothing. That's like, like you said. Straw man. It's I'm a gonna straw say, man. I'm going to exactly. find one study and say that everybody's claiming this based on one study. Exactly. And knock down that study. Exactly. But like That's you just did do. that for the thirty percent study. Yeah, we could do that, right? But then we just need to find all the other studies that reinforce that number. Right. And there aren't any more for the thirty percent number. Yeah. Well, We're yeah, doomed. that We're that doomed. that
1: survey was old and yeah. and was not the target population. It was meant to deceive. That was meant to deceive by cherry-picking that that one study.
3: We're we're doomed. Just accept it. Yeah. The other (laughs) – one other
1: email – again, I don't know why I got these in a cluster – was, you know, quoting, uh, again, someone else who was saying that, you know, back in the – and this is the – back in the 70s, they said that there was global cooling. Yeah, right. Then they said that Y two K was going to kill us all, and that didn't happen. And then it's so like a series of doomsday predictions that didn't come true. And I've heard this before as well.
3: It's so old I from uh, from soundtrack. other people.
1: This that this is a common talking point. That this is just the it latest is. in an endless sequence of doomsday predictions. It's the fad, the flavor of the month, and it'll go away.
3: Which we have said ourselves regarding your crazy, you know, religious, uh, uh, yeah, uh, apocalypse it's, it's a
1: superficially effective sounding. Point the problem is all the details are wrong. So first of all, no, <laughs> there was no consensus in the seventies or eighties that global cooling was a thing.
2: No, and also climate change and whether you want to call it global warming or whatever the the title was, we've known about this for decades. Yeah. I know this is not a decades. fad. This is not
3: new.
1: That's like a, think,
2: early in the millennium, last millennium, people were starting 30 to years, notice these. I trends. think in the
3: fifties is when it was yeah. know, first, or uh, you know, the very very bare beginning. I think there of the are a revelation. couple.
2: I think there are a couple of articles from people starting to to ring those warning bells even before that. I think in the fifties is when enough people started to go, oh gosh, yeah, this is really like a concern that we need to look at.
1: And like the Y2K thing we've talked about, it's like that the Y2K didn't happen because we invested millions of dollars in preventing (laughs) it from happening. Right. There was a concerted massive effort to to change I, code, you know, to get computers to be Y2K compliant.
2: I love when people look at technology literally like it's magic. Like there's technology yeah. elves that just make it work. And they don't think about the like tons yeah. of people and the tons of investment that go into it working. So when it's like, oh, there's a legitimate risk here, well, let's mitigate that risk. It's like, oh, no, we just dreamed it away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, but that's no, the thing. If you like, do
1: your job, like if you. If you <laughs> If you prevent the disaster, then people think, oh, there was never going to be a disaster. You were just. Yeah, they know, know, or, know. or
0: they minimize what it would have been. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, well, whatever. That was not as, as bad as they were saying. Yeah. You, know, like you never
1: get credit if you actually prevent <sighs> it. And if, you, and if it happens, well, why weren't you there to prevent it? Okay, it's a no win yeah. scenario.
3: Bob, are you depressed? This wave of anti science is like freaking me out. It's just like, what the hell? What have we been but doing? Here's the, for the thing. Past All right, 20 Bob, here,
1: here's some good news. Here's some good news. Please. Is that. <laughs> the not only is the scientific consensus getting stronger uh, around man-made global warming but uh politicians are starting to come around too it's they're they're even on the Republican end. They're starting to talk more about okay. I guess we better find some free market solutions because the whole like mm-hmm. denying it's happening at all thing is not really working anymore. So I do think that pub, now that it's happening, now that people's lives are being directly affected by climate change, you know, with the fires in California and the hurricanes and the tornadoes, et cetera. Again, we not you can't ever blame any single event on climate change, but the We're getting more and more and more of these extreme weather events, not by coincidence. It's starting to affect people's lives. There are people displaced by climate change, et cetera. Here in the US, it's been affecting
2: people's lives globally for a
1: long time. But I'm saying, yeah, but exactly. We're talking about in the US politically. Now that that's happening, yeah, people are coming around. A majority of Americans accept that anthropogenic global warming is happening. And that we probably should be doing something about it. So I think that, that the denial is starting to erode. It's starting to become a minority opinion. You know, and it's it's at least splitting, I think, Because the, the it's the undeniable right. at this yeah, point. I mean right.
2: we know, like and we've talked about this before on the show, that climate change denialism is not a natural or maybe I shouldn't say natural, but a background thing that happens. Climate change denialism is an effortful, concerted, agenda-driven ruse. Right? Like there are people in positions of gaining something from people denying climate change that have been pushing this narrative. Um, And the funny thing is that some of the very architects, you know, individuals who work for industries for whom green energy expansion and things like that would actually be damaging to their industries. They're the ones who know better than anybody that climate change is real. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at the uh, R&D of large multinational oil and refinery corporations like these corporations have active mitigate climate change mitigation plans mm-hmm. in place. Their scientists know, are the ones who totally agree that climate change is happening. It reminds
3: me of the uh, tobacco companies in the 50s. Yeah, right? It's they really it.
2: interesting. They knew it the whole time, which is why they were so good at developing a really good propaganda p- campaign. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's so frustrating about climate change denial is that if you're denying climate change, you've been duped.
1: Yeah, you've
0: been duped. Right. Yeah.
2: Like you didn't come up with this opinion on your own, or you,
0: or you don't care.
2: Yeah, but either way, this isn't something that like just living life. It seemed reasonable to believe that. Oh, it just doesn't seem that reasonable. There was a there was an active propaganda campaign that you bought into, hook, line, and sinker, and that's why you don't believe in climate.
1: Change. Uh, it's, it's frustrating when I I hear people I hear people quoting talking points as if they thought of it right. Yes. And I know. literally, dude, somebody in a back room thought that up to mm-hmm. deceive you. And you're buying it. It's kind of sad. I always feel like it's a little sad. And it's really challenging. This is one of the hard things I find the most challenging to deal with. When people say things to me that are really dumb. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, what? how do you react to that? Because I, I feel in my – to the core of my being, that's – the fact that you believe that, it's really – it's ignorant. It's gullible and it's yeah. a lot of motivated reasoning behind that. Yeah, all wrapped you up. can't
2: say that to them.
1: But you can't so say offensive. that to them yeah. and it's I, it's hard to keep it off my face, you know, because it's like it's especially when disgust. people say things like really really out there like flat earthers or people tell you like, "Oh yeah, the why they think the world is flat?" It's like how can I how can I hide the fact that I just heard something <laughs> that's mind-numbingly so stupid?
0: stupid.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, Steve, (laughs) don't you agree? Isn't that like kind of the number one email we get? Like we get pedantic emails from people who have expertise in something that we talked about, correcting, you know, a tiny thing that we said. Um, That's a very common type of email we get. And another probably equally common is people going like, how do I talk to my brother? He's a moron. (laughs) And every time he brings this stuff up, I can't help but be mean to him. And it always ends in a fight. And I just want to do this more proactively and kinder? Like, how yeah. am I, How can I approach this? It's
1: in no way. I mean, you know, we talk about this a lot. It's partly a no win scenario because the reality is that that person just said something profoundly dumb. And there's, yeah. there's no way <laughs> and around that. You can't that. let them know there's, you think it's dumb. So, how do you? You have to try to make them see that themselves. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a sort of a roundabout backdoor kind of approach that you have to take because if you just tell them, That's ridiculously dumb, the thing that you just said. You're just going to get defensive. Yeah, the shields are going to go up. You're not going to accomplish anything except just feeling superior to them which isn't yeah really- which doesn't help they will, I mean, they will
3: gird their loins and be like and you know dig in dig their heels in oh yeah they'll double yeah. down
2: it's i'm i feel like i get really good practice and that you guys got good practice in this being parents i feel like i'm getting really good practice in this working with adolescents who have you know who struggle and have issues like teenagers have dumb beliefs <laughs> but I have to say though, like little
1: kids ask great questions.
2: Of course they do, they, and that's amazing. They, they, but every they're so ignorant; often they, they think-
1: lack information. But they, they're it's not they're, they're not saying things that are like actively dumb. It's more yeah, just they just lack teenagers information. Do, though, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because they, they've, they've, they've been, so been around long enough list. to be programmed with propaganda and silly
2: Exactly. And they, they have ideas in their head about what behavior, you know, what decisions lead to what. Like, they think that really bad decisions are good decisions because they are lacking the foresight and the frontal lobe ability to, like, see what's going to happen downstream, yeah, right? Yeah. And so they're like, no, this is a good idea. And it's really hard to be like, no, it's a bad idea. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why because X, Y, and Z are going to happen. You yeah. have to literally help them. Get to that place on their own, which is yes. so frustrating. It's hard, difficult but that's to, whatever. You know.
1: That's that's what we do. They got to be. You got to take a yep. nurturing approach. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and and you can do it. But it does, that's challenging though to sort of suppress that. Oh my god! I mean, How could it, somebody say like, that? You
2: know, it's empathy combined with patience. Yeah, a lot and of that's patience. a hard a hard thing to achieve on a regular basis. But it's the only way to like slowly and steadily chip away and affect change. And also I think we need to remember it's different when it's like your brother who you talk to on a regular basis, who's like a flat earther or who is like a again. And every conversation you have is frustrating, but you know that slowly and steadily, hopefully you can come to a place where you can coexist. Than like some rando person on the internet who you're going to encounter one time, like let's measure the amount of effort we actually want to put in with these people.
1: The other for the rando on the internet, uh, Kara, what the approach that I often take is not to even engage with them. If they're not engaging with me, it's often not useful to try to engage with them. Then I'm just going to address the audience, you know, the the other readers or whatever, to correct misinformation.
2: Yeah, and, and if you if they are directly engaging with you, you know I I'd say use your best judgment. Just be really careful not to get sea lioned. And if you don't yes. know what that is, yeah. look it up because it's right. very they, easy to fall into that trap. They
1: they suck you into old defending your position endlessly. Mm-hmm. But 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 what I mean engaging, I mean they're listening to me. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that's, that's true. what I mean that's by important. engaging. They're actually engaging with what I'm saying. Not. Yeah directing what their nonsense at
3: me. Mm. Or or or, or in another way to look at it is they're waiting for their turn to talk, right? Yeah. And what you're saying is essentially irrelevant.
1: Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus.
0: Why do we listen to The Great Courses Plus? Why do we listen to the lectures on there? Why do we keep talking about this? Because The Great Courses Plus has fantastic lectures that are like – Going to school, that's how much information you can get out of these lectures. They are incredibly information dense. And every time I listen to one, even if it's a topic that I'm familiar with, I always learn a lot of things that I didn't know.
3: And if it's like going to school, it's like going to school to only the classes that you want to go to.
2: Yeah, and it's like going to school with the best professors out there. It's an incredible streaming service that has thousands of lectures available to you, all presented by incredibly passionate experts. And the best part is you can watch them or listen to them, kind of podcast style, entirely on your schedule from anywhere.
1: Yeah, this week we're listening to this really fascinating course, What Darwin Didn't Know, the Modern Science of Evolution. So, of course, you know Darwin is the father of evolutionary theory, But there was a lot that we didn't know about evolution at that time, which is why it's always silly, right? For creationists to always be talking about Darwinism and Darwin. There's a hundred years of evolutionary science since then. And this goes over a lot of that evolution taking place in the lab, for example, a genetic drift, the sterile worker paradox, the evolution of extreme life, evolutionary medicine, and even the future of human evolution. 24 lectures, fascinating course.
3: Enjoy a free trial with unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library. Start your free trial today only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys. Let's get back to the show.
2: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for three regular news items? Probably. All right. Number one, a survey of popular songs between 2006 and 2016 found that references to violence in the pop genre were similar in frequency to hip-hop and rap. Item number two, data collected from monitoring drivers shows that distracted drivers were 29 times more likely to be in a crash or near crash when driving through a work zone. And item number three, an extensive review of ethnographic records from 60 societies finds no universal moral codes. Jay, why don't you go first?
0: Okay, this first one, a survey of popular songs between 2006 and 2016 found that references to violence in the pop genre were similar in frequency to hip-hop and rap. That's, well, okay, so 2006 to 2016 might very well be the weakest decade of my song knowledge of all time. But, you know, with, with what pop music I have acquainted myself with, Because I'm happy You know there's (laughs) nothing in there there's nothing in there about doing any kind of damage to people or violence. I don't know, Steve. Okay, I'm gonna have to just read the others now. Data collected (laughs) from monitoring drivers shows that distracted drivers were twenty nine times more likely to be in a crash or near crash when driving through a work zone. Well why of course. That makes when you perfect say work sense.
2: zone, is that a, sorry, that might be a regional thing. Do you mean like a construction zone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it, like it, people any, any, kind of,
1: any kind, of, it could be, they could be felling trees, any kind of work zone. Gotcha.
2: But you mean like
1: cones and cones, and yeah, there's and, and, yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's a, a, hats, a, guy, yeah. a cop there and there's a truck there, yeah.
0: yeah. Even though you'd think that people would like, oh, I better put my phone down now and they'd become more attentive during those times. Uh, but but there's more stuff to hit in the road. And then the last one, an extensive review of Ethnographic records from 60s societies finds no universal moral codes. So uh, this one really confuses me, Steve. So wh- what could I – what is an ethnographic record? So basically documents that indicate the beliefs
1: of a particular culture.
2: Yeah, ethnography is like a – it's the science of it's, – it's like sociology. Yeah, right, so okay. Any, anything that sense. would
0: be an insight into what they believe about morality. Okay, so – in sixty societies, now we don't have a year when this was done, but in sixty societies, recent find no universal moral codes. See, so that one doesn't sound true to me because I always thought that there were kind of universal moral moral codes about you know not killing people and whatnot, um, especially in modern society. Well, I don't know, but that first one, man, I don't know about the music. It's like really pop songs are talking about violence. Yeah. And I think this last one is the one that Steve would think we would think is fake. I'm going to say that the pop music one is the fake. Okay, Bob. For the first one here about the music, I mean, I I
3: listen to science books, <laughs> science fiction, <laughs> podcasts, and the music I have on my phone. I, the, this latest stuff, I uh, <laughs> might as well just roll the dice on that one. So this one doesn't – it wouldn't surprise me, I'd say. Jump to the third one, the, the uh, ethnographic records yeah I think that it wouldn't surprise me either to find a huge disparity between um between various societies like you think, Oh you know no society's gonna condone murder like well, really, come on, think about it. there's so many exceptions and other and reasons I think it makes sense that that, that they would be just so varied that they that you wouldn't find the commonality that you think you could make universal, so that one doesn't surprise me either. The one that really struck me though was this this um the second one here about the uh the, the work zones to me i 'm thinking people are going to be distracted. When specifically when it's like a, you know on, on the road where nothing's really going on, you're not expecting anything to happen. That's when I think you're going to see a lot of people looking at their phone and doing funky stuff. When you're in a work zone, you're seeing cones, you're seeing cops, you're seeing signs, stop, go. You are paying attention. Ad- at least I know I am. I'm pay- You're paying attention. I'm not looking at my phone when when I got when there's like people in front of me and uh, cones and something's going on and people are cutting trees. So I think they're going to be. I think there'll be less. Less distracted, less accidents, much less uh, than, than normal. So I'll say that one's fiction.
2: And Kara. I don't agree with either of you.
3: Wow. Oh. Think, pick, the th- pick the other one then.
2: Then he won't sweep us at least.
3: Yeah, there's that.
2: <sighs> I mean, okay. So I or don't know GWB. a lot about – I'm kind of with you, Jay. Like I listen to the music that I listened to in high school and college, but I do work with a lot of adolescents now. I listen to rap a lot, but I also listen to pop a lot. I think more and more pop sounds like – rap. Pop has become like heavily like dance music. It's very different than what we used to consider pop music. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw and also violence. This is one of those things where sometimes science or fiction pisses me off because I'm like, what is the construct? How are we defining violence? Like it doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about guns, right? Like we could just be talking about disturbances. We could be talking about like there's so many different ways to define what violence is and where's that that cut off so depending on how they define it i could very easily see that pop songs you know a lot of them are about breakups
1: um, i'll tell you they used a standard definition of of uh, violence they quoted it in the study mm-hmm. oh, i'm gonna have to dig up that one quote where they say that we used the standard definition well, and they gave some reference and they gave a what sounds like a reasonable commonsensical definition of Okay. Violence, right. like you intend to cause somebody else physical harm, whatever. It's like, physical harm.
2: Yeah, that's what I would assume. It's yeah. Physical harm, but like I just feel like pop songs are heavily about breakups and they're heavily about like dark themes. They just sound happy, and so I'm not gonna be because like the beat is happy, so I'm not gonna be surprised by that one. Um, but I'm also not surprised by the distracted right because that's the key term there. We're already talking about the group of people who are distracted. We're not talking about regular drivers being more distracted in the zone. We're saying that of a group of drivers, if we pull out all the ones that were distracted, meaning they were on their cell phones already or they were eating in the car or they were having a phone conversation with Bluetooth, whatever, they were more likely to be in a crash or a near crash. Well, yeah. I don't even notice sometimes when I'm distracted. I don't even notice when I'm in a construction zone sometimes. I think that's the point. Um, So, you know, and it's so common in LA, like every zone is a construction zone. Everything's constantly under construction. So I would not be surprised by that one. But the one that just kills me, and maybe this is where I'm hoping that my background in psych and philosophy helps me, or maybe it's really failing me and misleading me here is, of course, there are universal moral codes. None across 60 societies? That doesn't even seem plausible by chance. Yeah,
0: I know. I think you're
2: right. (laughs) And so there's got to be some things that are trending there. Whether it's death, it might not be death, but like, you know, golden rule kind of stuff. Do unto others as they would do unto you. Basic moral things. I think that there's going to be some. I mean, there are things that are universal in all societies, like smiling with pleasure. It's an innate thing that we do. It's not a learned thing. Like you see it across all societies, regardless of how different right, that is. That's not a moral is. code. No, I know, but I do think that there are going to be some innate reactionary things that develop even in societies that don't have internet access or even in societies in which, you know, sex with multiple partners or, you know, all these different things are, are considered normal. So some of the more I think esoteric moral things are probably not consistent. But yes, I think that basic morality about things like theft, murder, respect, basically health and safety kind of morality things are going to be established amongst multiple. It's just – it's going to blow my mind if that one is, the, is science and so I'm ready to take the heat if it is. So
1: you guys are all spread
2: out, which I like actually. It's yeah. mm-hmm. actually better
1: – I prefer that to a sweep because this way I know I balance the three items really well. Okay, Right. There's no reason not to take these in order, since you guys are all over the board, so we'll start with number uh, one. A survey of popular songs between 2006 and 2016 found that references to violence in the pop genre were similar in frequency to hip-hop and rap. Jay, you think this one is the fiction. Bob and Kara, you think this one is science. And this one is science.
3: Yeah, baby. Yeah, that's, that's surprising.
1: Yeah, Kara, you actually – I don't know if you read this study, but you Mm-mm. you hit on it exactly that the uh the concern is that pop songs sound lighthearted but they conceal a lot of violent themes they're they're in there it's in the lyrics but they but it could be a light and and you know uh an upbeat song but it's I still- feel
2: like I just know that because I listen to a lot of punk rock music and yeah. there's sort of a genre of punk rock which is not as gritty it's more poppy and happy sounding but it's so dark when you listen yeah, to Yeah they're
1: the dark lyrics. a lot of them are dark yeah like I remember that one song that I something about being in a bar on Saturday night or whatever. You'll know this song. And then like for the first time, I actually listened to the lyrics. Like holy shit, this guy's talking about the fact that he beat his girlfriend, mm-hmm. gave her a black eye, and now he's got to follow her home drunk at the end of a. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, you know, you mean, know the song I'm talking about.
2: I don't know that song, but I do know that there's a song about, like, by Foster the People. You guys have probably heard this one. It's one of the, the most earwormy, horrible, that, like, all the other kids with the pumped yes. up yes, kicks, yeah. you better run, better run, out with my gun. This is about some his shoes. my bullets. I know. And true. then going and killing
1: him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's a pop song, but it's like, you better outrun mm-hmm. my bullets. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. As for the hip-hop <laughs> sounds dark, or the, yep. you know, rap may sound dark. Pop songs don't, but they... Actually, so I had to dig a little bit deep on this one to get to the original study because I, I just uh, they weren 't giving enough numbers in the press release the I got all the way to the the most detailed published study was actually from two thousand and six. This is an update in two thousand and six. The rate in pop songs like between two thousand like four five, and six was actually higher than pop music and rap, mm. but then when they included all the way through two thousand and sixteen. Hip hop was a little higher than pop, but they were very close. They were similar. But pop music was higher when it came to themes of um standard gender stereotypes, which is not surprising. Hip hop was higher when it came to misogynistic themes, portraying women in like subservient roles.
2: Ugh gross. Yeah.
1: And and we're talking like eighty six percent for violence in pop songs. You know, not this is the majority. Mm-hmm. It was very high. So yeah, but I definitely was surprised that it's like it's the same the reputation is that hip hop and rap is violent, and but it's basically the same.
2: I wonder what it would be if they actually split the data based on um, the gender. Of they did. The they musician. did. Oh, they, they did. did. They did.
1: And Is I'd it have the same? To, I, no, it's mm. more for men
2: than women. Yeah. And yep. then I probably if you actually look at the overall number of just songs, there are probably more songs by men still.
1: Yeah. And guess which genre had the least violent
2: references? Oh my gosh, if it's country, I'm gonna laugh.
1: It's country. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's
2: Whoa. amazing. Because they're like, I'm gonna drink my beer with my pick'em up truck, but I'm just gonna pet my dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, mean, I don't wanna commit any crimes. Pick'em up truck. I love it. I am allowed to talk like that. I'm from Texas. Okay. My whole family's sounds Take your like word that. From it. <laughs>
1: All right. Let's go on number two. Data collected from monitoring drivers shows that distracted drivers are 29 times more likely to be in a crash or near crash when driving through a work zone. Uh, Bob, you think this one is the fiction. Jane, Carrie, you think that this one is science. And I guess this one is about the 29 times that number You know, because it could be that, yeah, they were more likely, but it was only two times more likely or whatever.
3: Yeah, that's a huge number.
1: 29 times is a huge number. So that, that's really what this one came down to. And this one
3: is... Say it. Say it. Science. Oh, come yes. on. Yeah. yeah. 29.
1: 29 Intuition times. Intuition didn't fail me. 29 times. So – and this is a good study where they were uh, – they actually were monitoring drivers in a real world so-called naturalistic st- oh, driving nice. conditions uh, where they had some kind of monitor in the car so they knew what the person was doing and – uh, if you were doing – if you were engaged in any non-driving-related secondary task for more than six seconds, your risk was increased by 5.46 times. But if you were actually coded as distracted or inattentive, it was 29 times was the risk of getting into an accident or a near accident around a workplace.
2: Wow. Yeah.
3: Wait a second. Wait. So the tr- oh, Yeah. If I read that a little bit more carefully, it was the ones that were distracted.
1: Yeah, that's what I said. It was of the distracted (laughs) driver. Jesus, right? Not just doing something. That was only. Mm -hmm. That's still five times is huge. But if you were actually like inattentive, then yeah, your chances are basically almost (laughs)
3: guaranteed. Of course. So don't feel bad, Bob. uh, Yeah, uh, it's such human psychology. You know, I just did not. That did not really. Enter my awareness that, mm, that it was mm. the dist- and when you think about it it makes perfect sense yeah sure. if you're distracted yeah you're gonna you're your odds of getting hitting something are way up yeah uh, but you are but you the premise of the entire number two was that you were distracted yes mm-hmm. which yeah. I did which I did not even pick up All, right.
1: All right. yep. self driving cars that's what we need self driving cars okay yeah. oh my
2: gosh so true.
1: Number three, an extensive review of ethnographic records from 60 societies finds no universal moral codes. This one, of course, is the fiction. Yes! And yeah, you I love ins- this too. This your is instincts like one of those times. were correct. This is, a, this is again, a very interesting study. They did mm. a massive review. Uh, they looked at over, over years. And, and what they found actually was that they identified seven universal moral themes. Oh
2: wow, seven! I thought there would
1: be like themes. Yeah, so well, it's again lumper splitter thing. Like so, not in very very specific individual behaviors, but like for example, like every society thinks that cooperation is a good thing, you know. For example, or that it's it's wrong to, I don't know if they specifically said steal, but they you know they described it in more general terms. So, and they said like it derives from the fact that we're we're a uh, a social species, right? And so, the the themes were helping kin, helping your group, reciprocating, being brave, deferring to superiors, dividing disputed resources, and respecting prior possession.
2: So nothing though on like murder, <laughs> but I guess respecting. What was the first two? It was like respecting or being kind to your family. And you're yeah
1: helping your can helping your group reciprocating. Helping. I guess okay. reciprocating. Yeah,
2: you know. yeah. But like killing somebody is not helping them. Well, <laughs> but every, unless every unless they're in pain. Yeah, yeah, that's true.
3: Helping them get to the afterlife.
2: But the idea is
1: that <laughs> you know if somebody gives you something, you're supposed to give something back. That is sort of critical to a social.
2: Yeah, that's very culture. and it's fundamentally golden rule too. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Dividing disputed resources and otherwise, that one if you surprises don't surprises do me. People, that's what people are going to kill each other, right? So yeah, that's true. Well, well, good for
0: you, Kara. Oh, thanks, Jay.
2: <laughs> this is one of those ones where, like, a, I think that I was served by having read a lot of papers, and b, mm-hmm. I didn't fall victim to that thing I often do where I go, "Well, that one's the obvious one, so I should pick a different one because right. Steve that's is, what happened to me a little
0: bit. Ugh, yeah. I
2: hate it when I do that. I got to stop doing that. So yeah, I got to mix it up sometimes.
1: And C, <laughs> that's why I made you go last. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hey Steve, in, in
0: Evan's absence, I have a quote if you like.
1: Oh, I I, I pulled a quote too. Okay. All right. So and did I. Quote? My I'm quote's lying. good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay, let me let me hear crap. your
0: quote. You want to hear my quote, Steve? Yeah, let's hear it. Well, this one has a little story behind it. So, um, you are aware of a man called Benjamin Franklin. Yes. Heard of him. So there is a there is a falsehood that Ben Franklin was was in Paris at the very first hot air balloon flight which was the uh Montgolfier brothers he was not oh, there for balloon. that first flight in 1783 uh, and that's where he was he was attributed the following quote but he did this is a quote from him it just didn't happen at that event it happened at a later flight from other people in a hot air balloon i, I think even later that same year um. So he, an observer, asked him upon looking up at the hot air balloon uh, and it, and the people flying in it. Well, what's the use, or what what use is it? And Franklin reply, replied, "What use is a newborn baby?" And I think that is so. Whoa, I love that insightful, yeah, right? I've heard like that you know, yeah. Upon first viewing of a newborn baby, you're like, "Well, what use is that thing?" You know, what's what's <laughs> what's with this? You know, it's a. Wow, Look, looks that. like a bag of uh, pain over here, you know. But yeah, it turns I think into about it that turns. Potential. In, yeah, but it, the potential bag is of there. Protoplasm. So uh, this was a quote from
2: Benjamin Franklin.
0: No, Welcome what back, use Jay.
1: is a newborn baby? That definitely does require some context. It does. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. All right. Good job, Jay. Thank you. Reprieve your old role as the quote meister. Wait, I, you I, were I the quote meister? I oh, yeah. was. Kara, so I used to. Jay's that,
0: thing was that he would yell who did
1: the quote every time. Right. Yeah, it was my.
0: Well,
2: I was confused by that. Yeah. It,
0: it, it's me thanking them for being awesome. I love that. Yeah, but who started like this like if whole? I, quote if I were to quote stuff. Cara Santa Maria, it would be like, um, "I love neurology and philosophy and psychology, but I also love a good meal."
2: Cara <laughs> Santa Maria. That's a really weird quote.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'm
2: trying to figure of- <laughs> it. But I do like hearing my name in lights.
0: Yes. Yeah. That was your name, in in audible lights.
2: In audible lights, yeah.
1: All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks,
0: Steve. You got it, Steve. And, hey, Steve, I'm here for you every week. Thank you, Jay. Actually, I'm here for you every day now. That's actually. true. <laughs> That's true. And until
1: next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info@theskepticsguide.org, And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.